stay hungry, stay foolish. Just before we start into part two of Helena Bosky's Why We Do What We Do, I want to thank our sponsor Zai Boli, transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. Let's get into part two of Why We Do What We Do with Helena Bosky. It is great to welcome back the author of Why We Do What We Do, Helena Bosky. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's great to be back. We'll only have time for a couple of things today because I mentioned about how in-depth you go in the book. The two things I'd love to talk about so specific to our audience are biases, the impact of biases then on change initiatives and then change initiatives itself and how difficult it is for the brain to go through change. So maybe we'll start with an overview of biases because we've done a lot on biases in the show so far. But really, when people look at biases, they see I'm broken because I'm biased. And that's not the case at all. If you're human, you're biased. If you're human, you're biased. Absolutely right. And we can't, we can't fix these. We have to face them head on. And we have to accept that we will all have our biases uh, for, for all our lifetime. But, and, and different people carry different biases. But the minute we accept these and uh, we recognize that we are going to be making biased decisions, we will then do things to compensate for these and correct them by talking to people who might carry different biases to us, but who might be able to help protect us or provide another perspective to the world that we're seeing. Because our reality is entirely subjective. We, we, we create this, our brain creates the reality that we live within. So uh, we, and we carry this around and we use it to make decisions but all our decisions to a greater or a lesser extent will be flawed and other people can help provide different perspectives so that we, we, we are able to develop a much more considered and thorough view. We had uh, the brilliant Elliot Aronson on the show before he wrote a magnificent book called The Social Animal and he worked with Leon Festinger on the theory of cognitive dissonance. And he brought this theory that you'll absolutely love, Helena, it's called Jigsaw Classroom. And the jigsaw classroom was this idea that everybody had a piece of the jigsaw to bring. And therefore, you didn't compete, you didn't create competition in the classroom. And instead, you, you created collaboration and working together and teamwork, etc. But I'd love you to share cognitive dissonance in your view from a corporate perspective, and then also motivated reasoning, which is closely related. These are so important to understand if you're a decision maker in an organization or a change maker. So cognitive dissonance, it's a powerful psychological phenomenon that that acts quickly when we are faced with information that contradicts an existing belief. So if we believe something to be true, and then we receive in information that or data that contradict that belief, we find ways that the brain starts to feel uncomfortable. And motivated reasoning is the second psychological phenomenon that then activates to help us justify uh, our existing belief. So even in the face of very rational, uh, very thorough information uh, that that would would seem to be 
completely, you know, we should we should actually listen to this and accept this. Uh, we don't, uh, because we can't bear to have an existing belief challenged because it's been part of us for so long. So we develop ways of rationalizing and reasoning uh, so that we are then able to uh, minimize this dissonance or this discomfort in the brain and still continue with that existing belief. And so, uh, you know, this is what we do. If you think about this, we we have all kinds of excuses, you know, um, and we develop them. We, we tell people about them. So, you know, you take smokers who are given huge amounts of information about what smoking does to our health, our lifespan, But people then come up with very rational and very justifiable explanations, which is, well, uh, more people get hit by a bus than dying of smoking related diseases. Uh, My grandparents lived to the age of 98 uh, and smoked 60 a day. I'll be fine. And so, you know, to them, that's a way of justifying and feeling more comfortable with this contradictory information. One of the goals I'm on one of these missions this odyssey that I'm on in life is to go what if I can minimize those things as in really catch myself in the act of a bias so I've become much more aware of metacognitive awareness of catching myself and kind of going ah you did it there Aiden that thing you keep doing you keep doing over and over and over again and the reason I, I share that is one of the goals of the show is a for you the listener the audience to lead a better life. And then two is for the organization to lead a better organization, because most of us work in organizations or work with them in some respect. And I was thinking about that, that it just feels like a grating itch, you know, needs to be scratched or a buzzing fridge that's annoying when you're living with cognitive distance, when you know you're doing something that isn't really serving you. And surely, for me, I, I'm just going. Surely, that is using up cognitive energy that could be better deployed elsewhere. The brain has a very good way of um, of quickly helping us feel okay, but that period in between, not feeling okay and feeling okay, that can that can sometimes be a little bit exhausting for the brain. That does use a lot of cognitive energy, but very quickly. You see, the brain. Is, is very good at, uh, at justifying entirely the wrong decision if it's going if it's going to help it feel better about the the world that it's responding to or the, the responses that we're giving so so what happens is that we we're designed to think very quickly now way back in um, in ancient times the Greek historian Herodotus said that the ancient Persians, Uh, made their decisions twice, once while drunk and once while sober. And if the drunk decision lined up with the sober decision, only then would the decision stand. And then a long time later, the psychologists, neuroscientists, behavioral economists came along and they started calling this hot and cold cognition. So the hot cognition is our really quick thinking brain. Now, Daniel Kahneman in the 70s with with his colleague, Amos Tversky, then started to look at this some more. And they said that our thinking systems are system one and system two. System one is fast, irrational, prone to biases, 
uh, very intuitive. And that's the first port of call. That's the first thinking system that activates when we're having to make a decision. System two is slower, more rational, less prone to biases. But because it's slower to respond to the world, it takes a lot more cognitive energy. And it uh, it also, uh, we use it also to uh, rationalize a system one response. So in other words, we rationalize a gut response, an intuitive response by using system two. So to, you know, this cognitive energy that we are trying to avoid using because the brain is extremely lazy and it likes to find the easiest route through to anything. This is why we defer to system one, the biased brain, uh, because it's quick, it's easy, it takes uh, uh, less um, neural resources, and uh, we're able to move forward with our lives more quickly. System two takes a lot more effort and time and energy. And we'll talk a little bit, hopefully, at another stage about how to feed that brain in those energy states as well to be able to get the best out of yourself, exercise being important, etc, oxygenating the brain, etc. I, I just had this image, by the way, of uh, Amos Sursky and uh, Kahneman sitting in the pub, uh, <laughs> kind of going, let's make let's make this thing about being drunk actually into a system. <laughs> that was the origins of it. Don't quote me on that anybody listening to the show. But uh, one of the things I thought there about that, again, that cognitive energy, uh, and maybe you'll remind us about why, because the origins of the brain as well was like, well, it uses a hell of a lot of energy for its actual capacity inside the body. But I thought about choice overload or the paradox of choice or choice paralysis and we've all seen this and maybe you've suffered from this maybe it, you're ordering from a menu and there's too many things you want on that menu you're like oh i don't know what to take i don't know what to have and then you have maybe loss aversion when you get something you kind of go i should have ordered the steak i should i knew it i should have ordered a steak but this is a phenomenon that is also applicable in organizations when you have too many choices of too many strategies for example this is called avoidance of choice and fewer options will lead us to make a decision more quickly than giving people a lot of options. And they did a study with jams. They had 26 different bottles of jams being sold versus six bottles of different bottles of jams being sold. And only 3% of people walking past the, the display of 24 bottles um, actually bought jam, whereas 30% of people walking past past the display with six jars bought jam. So we we don't like to be given too much choice because it, it, it clouds our thinking. We like to be given fewer options. But when we're given options, we uh, make some very interesting decisions. And this is where the uh, hot cognition, the drunk brain really uh, kicks in. So for example, if you're ordering wine in a wine list, uh, we tend not to read all the way down the wine list because we have a very lazy brain plus we are wanting to make a quick decision we're often there because we're in a social environment so we tend to to read down probably halfway down so the information the brain stores first is very important and this is called the anchoring effect the first number that gets seen by the brain then acts as an anchor for all subsequent numbers and what this tells us is that if we arrange our wine listing with the most expensive 
bottle of wine first, we are going to compare all the other prices to that expensive bottle of wine. And in comparison, all the other wine will look relatively cheap. The brain never looks at anything and says, what is this? The brain looks at everything and says, what is this like? So it makes this comparative decision. And so if you put your most expensive bottle of wine, even though it's hugely expensive, it could be, you know, horribly expensive. You put that first and then you put, uh, you know, the prices of wine, even though they still look expensive. But compared to that first bottle, they look relatively less expensive people are going to pay more for wine because they make this relative decision. If you were to put your cheapest bottle of wine first, uh, people will use that cheap, the low point as the anchor and so will spend less. So this tells you something about the psychology of pricing, uh, how we're constantly being nudged. And this has given rise to nudge theory, how human behavior is being nudged all the time because of the context in which they receive information. And of course, it sparked an enormous amount of psychological research coming out of places like MIT and Harvard, um, because it's a really, really fascinating area. It tells us a lot about the human condition. I often think about nudge theory, about the whole idea of, um, you know, if you've ever got something stuck in a vending machine and you give it a whack, <laughs> like it's like give it a nudge there and try and move it along. And one of the you you go into nudge theory in the book, including the UK government using nudge theory, having a nudge unit actually to bring it to life. But also I found a fascinating study in your book, which was the language that we use can prime how people think. So you mentioned the study in French schools about the use of the word geometry. So in that study, it was it was cited in The Economist and it was in French schools. And they found that if the subject was called geometry, the boys did better. But if it was called drawing, the girls did just as well as the boys. So just, just a word can affect our behavior. Uh, and this was, this was also an experiment way back in, I think it was 19, the 1970s, Elizabeth Loftus. And she asked people to watch a video of two cars colliding. She divided the group into different subgroups and she asked each group how fast they thought the cars were driving when they hit each other. But the word she used changed according to each group. So, for example, the first group was asked, how fast do you think the cars were driving when they bumped into each other? Second group was asked when they hit each other, collided with each other was another group. Um, crashed into each other or smashed into each other. And the word smashed uh, got the fastest speed. So when we prime people all the time, we set them up through the language we use. The words we use really affects our behavior, the way we remember things. Uh, and, you know, and it can also influence other people's behavior. If we're talking to other people and our impressions of somebody we then communicate, the words we use will then affect their lens and they become biased as well. They can sometimes inherit and, and catch our own biases. There's so much in this chapter. And one of the things I found so interesting was how we're so bad at judging risk. And you take, for example, you know, traveling by air or car, 
Ver- and, and then one of the things very relevant at the moment is, ooh, should I get vaccinated versus not getting vaccinated, etc. So maybe you'll share a bit about this, because this jumps ahead. You have a whole chapter on stress that we're going to cover at a later date. But this has a massive impact on the brain and how we're nudged certain ways. And when we're in a state of fear, we're way more likely to be nudged in certain ways. Exactly. So, I mean, this was, we saw, so certain biases have really strengthened as a result of the COVID pandemic. And one of the biases that strengthened is a bias called probability outcome. So we don't see the probability, we only see the outcome, especially if the outcome is very dramatic. And the brain is very, very uh, designed and predisposed to fear anyway. But when we're faced with a high-risk threat, like a killer virus, like COVID-19 was. None of us knew when this was all unfolding and emerging in uh, early 2020, none of us really knew what to expect. But what we do is we attach to the outcome. We don't see the probability, especially if the outcome is is death. So we we don't look at survivor numbers. We don't look at um, the chance of getting anything. We just look at the potential outcome. And this was shown in an experiment where people were told uh, that they, one group was told they were going to get, they were definitely going to get an electric shock at 99% probability. Second group were told they were 1%, it was a 1% probability chance of getting an electric shock. And they were asked to put up money to avoid paying for this electric shock. Now, you'd think that the different, very different probabilities would have been reflected in differing amounts of money. But oh, no, they gave very similar amounts of money because they didn't see the probability. They only saw the outcome and they gave around seven to ten dollars, whether they were going to get the shock one percent or ninety nine percent. So this tells us a lot about the vaccine and people were. We're looking at, so we'd see the outcome and we hooked to the negative side effects. So people, the anti-vaxxers were focused only on the side effects, even though there was a very low probability of getting side effects, people still saw the side effects. And this leads to another bias called the availability heuristic, which is the bigger, the more dramatic the outcome, the more common we think it is. You know, if you only have to think about shark attacks or terrorist attacks uh, and or lottery wins, and we think they're much more common than they really are. So the brain does really play tricks on us. And we have to be very careful about that. In 9-11, for example, uh, and the safest time logically and rationally to get on an airplane is immediately after an attack because everybody's on high alert Everybody's paying attention to potential danger. But but people got out of planes and got into cars, even though statistically there is a lot more chance of getting killed in a road accident than on a plane, even if there was a terrorist attack every week. And as a direct result of 9-11, there were an additional nearly 1,600 extra deaths on the road. So 9-11 didn't just kill people in the Twin Towers, it killed people on the roads as well. We're very poor at, at seeing statistics. We're very good at looking at outcome and we're very compelled by storytelling. 
one of the challenges with doing the show and going deep is a getting an author that has is willing to do that because it's a huge investment of time. So Helena, I'm very grateful for that. But then is also for you, the audience to be able to package that in a nice neat part. So we're just going to do a part on biases in the brain today. We're going to actually we're going to take a, a tea break. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break, Helena and I, and then come back and record the brain and creativity and innovation. And then we're going to come back at a later date and do more on change initiatives and transformation, etc. I think that's a good way to be able to manage the overload, the cognitive overload on the brain. But there's one more bias that we want to share. And this is so, so important. And in change initiatives, you see this in life, you see this in a world that's becoming more and more polarized. And that's in group out group, just to tee us up. One of the studies you mentioned was with children just to show how young this can start with the eye color test. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I'd love you to take us through in group out group, perhaps starting off with that little study. So 1968, and it was, I think it was the day after or the Monday after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And in a children's classroom in Iowa, the teacher Jane Elliott decided to conduct an experiment because one of the first things one of her pupils asked her as they walked in was, Miss Elliott, why was Dr. King shot? And she said to the children, children, we're going to play an experiment. Blue-eyed children come over here, brown-eyed children come over there. So she then told the, the blue-eyed children that they were better than the brown-eyed children, that they were smarter, that they were going to get more prizes, that they were fitter, they were better. And she watched to see what would happen. And what did happen was quite shocking in many respects and actually an experiment like this could never be carried out today because it would see to be seen to be too unethical but the blue-eyed children who previously had never before noticed the color of their friend's eyes started to segregate among each other and they treated their brown-eyed friends really badly and they even asked Jane Elliott to punish them they wouldn't play with them. They ostracized and isolated them. And at the end of the day, they went home. And the very next day, uh, Jane Elliott reversed the experiment. And this was really interesting because what she found was when she told the brown-eyed children that they were now better than the blue-eyed children, thinking that perhaps the brown-eyed children might be a bit more tolerant, supportive, encouraging, sympathetic to their blue-eyed friends because they had been on the receiving end of some pretty poor treatment. What she found was that the brown-eyed children were even worse. And this experiment uh, taught those children a valuable lesson, which is how quickly we, we separate into groups. We retreat to groups that we can find identity with, that we can find safety with. And I think I mentioned this in the last episode that we did, but this is a really important phenomenon because as we're trying to get people back to the office, this in-group, out-group bias will have strengthened over the course of the pandemic. And words like uh, social distancing are so bad for us because they, they encourage us to separate. I think WHO changed the language, but still 
The word distancing is not good for a species that's designed to be with each other. And we can't survive on our own. Studies have shown that loneliness can kill. Isolation is, is very bad for us. And we need to get people back together. But breaking this in-group, out-group bias, you know, in the UK, we've had furloughed versus non-furloughed. We've had people that work from home versus people who work in the office. We've seen this bias anyway over generations and centuries. But actually now it's got stronger and we will need to do a lot to try and mitigate against it and try and unify cultures again. So we've covered many shows on biases before but what's your take on what we can do about it because even with bias training people are reluctant to do that because they feel like they're being told they're broken or they're flawed some way and i'd love you to share what your top tips are for the biased brain and we're not broken this is the, the biased the biases we carry form a really valuable part of our psychological immune system we rely heavily on them to help us fast think and, and activate system one. We need them to make quick decisions. We are going to be more biased when information is lacking, when we're in a heightened emotional state, uh, when we're having to make a decision very quickly. That's when we rely very heavily on our biases. But there are things we can do. Now, unconscious bias training will never fix our biases. So we can do this and we can learn about the different biases, but we don't emerge from this type of training with our biases completely fixed and, and uh, we, we will always be biased. That's the first thing to remember. The, the next thing to remember is that we need to understand where we carry certain biases and when we are likely to be more biased, which times bring them out in us um, rather than other times. So. We've got to face ourselves in the face and face our biases head on. Uh, then we need to really understand that people who disagree with us might actually offer us another view. So even though we think we're right, what we mustn't do is activate cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning, reject contrary views, reject uh, people who uh, offer something to us that we perhaps don't agree with. What we have to do is listen to opposing viewpoints, recognize that they might actually see something that we have become blind to because of our own bias blind spot, and understand that diversity, although it's very difficult for the human brain, because the brain needs to be able to predict easily, it needs to feel that it can stay in control. So it seeks out similarity. We need to consciously and intentionally create diverse environments to help us give those opposing viewpoints uh, and make sure that we are listening to as many of these as possible. And this helps, defend, uh, this helps us defend ourselves against the biases we might carry. So as leaders, we have to encourage healthy debate, disagreement, uh, we need to uh, also watch against, defend against groupthink, where you might accept the majority view, but the majority view might not actually be the right view. That might just be a symptom of everybody wanting to agree with each other because no one really wants to rock the boat. So listen to, uh, create environments where people feel able to speak out uh, and make sure that people are able to provide uh, information that may be 
may go against the norm entirely, but actually there may be maybe a nugget of truth lying somewhere in that opposing viewpoint. A beautiful way to wrap up this part of the show. It's always a pleasure. Helena, for people who want to find you, I mentioned you do lots of corporate work, you do keynotes, etc. Where can they find you? Well, LinkedIn is probably the easiest place to find me. Uh, I'm also listed on a speaker agency called Leading Authorities. So if you Google my name, I'll probably pop up in either one or, or both of those. And don't forget, there's a copy of why we do what we do up for grabs. If you sign up to the innovation show in .io newsletter, you'll be in a chance to win a copy of that. We're going to come back after a quick break with the brain and innovation and creativity, a fascinating topic. We're going to talk about the structure of the brain, how you can manipulate situations to be able to be more creative and thus more innovative as well. For now, Helena Bosky, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's been a pleasure for me too. I want to just thank our sponsor, Zai, boldly transforming the future financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com.